This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster, and this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today we will be reviewing Strange New Worlds Episode 7, The Serene Squall, but we will start with the news with a big interview with Alex Kurtzman that was um, on the Ready Room where he covered a whole lot of topics with Will Wheaton across the whole Star Trek universe. He was asked by Will Wheaton, you know, are there going to be crossovers? And he said yes, and then he didn't say anything else. (laughs) Which he kind of implied a few months ago that such a thing is possible or inevitable i think he said now it feels like it's happening my bet is it's going to be a strange new world's discovery crossover and that it's going to be filmed in season five of discovery so it's it's a 2023 thing right is my and how bet. they'll they'll need some kind of time travel wackadoo yeah, it depends on your definition of a crossover. Like, you know, is Laurel like, showing up on Strange New Worlds a crossover? I don't think so. I mean, it is technically. I don't think so because she's not actively part of today's discovery. I think a crossover means okay, so current so you, cast. Current. current cast. She's a, you know, she's bringing someone back. She's not, you're not really crossing over. You know, you're going back, which is which is different. So I I think the and Alex knows that when you ask him a crossover, he's not going to say yes. Amanda will be there. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Now, it's possible this is the animated shows. I'm almost certain it's not anything to do with Picard. I think Picard season three is its own little tight thing. And there's going to be a ton of cameos. There's going to be, you know, some. Obviously, the TNG actors, I think we're going to see DS9 and Voyager people, too. Yeah. But none of that is, I would consider none of that a crossover with Voyager or Deep Space Nine. Those no. are callbacks, essentially. Right. They are cameos. You know, the easiest thing to do is with the animated shows, possibly. Which, again, could go either way, because you can take your live action characters and animate them, or you can take your animated characters and create them in live action. Now, the interesting thing is, do they do it... Because they can't really do it like they do it in the Arrowverse, which is known for these crossover things, right? Because those shows run concurrently. Um, Strange New Worlds Season 2 will probably arrive before Discovery Season 5. Perhaps you end Season 2 of Strange New Worlds with the beginning of the crossover and then you pick it up in Discovery Season 5. Who knows? They could. I mean, look, those those Arrowverse ones were always almost always hugely elaborate. And I'm not sure how elaborate they're thinking for this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those were big events that took place across multiple shows and multiple episodes. Yeah, this is probably not nearly that big. He did talk about how they are trying to interrelate the shows. So he said, There are things in Picard that are set to pay off in Discovery. There are things that we set up in Discovery that we can then go back and retrofit, you know, into things that we, you know, that haven't even been written yet. So they are trying to do that. I I think they're not doing it enough. I'm going to be perfectly frank. I mean, we've got five shows now and it just it, it could feel a bit more like a cinematic universe. Do you have any thoughts on something sort of? somewhat specific that you think would have been a good opportunity? Well, I think the crossover should have already happened, first of all. It should have happened with Discovery and Picard, I think. 
would have been interesting. Um, but you know, it's it's just more references, more ships and planets and events. I think they could have, you know, just I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's hard, right? It's it's <laughs> it's hard as a viewer. It's hard as a producer and writer. It's it's a big challenge. You know, maybe you start building up elements of a storyline from one show by getting it mentioned in another show. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if they get better at this. You know, there was that weird thing of the day that the season two finale of Picard and the season one premiere of Strange New Worlds arrived, and both of them were talking about the eugenics wars and world war three but they kind of and ironically written by the same guy mm-hmm. and but they didn't seem to fit together in the way they were talking about it you know no. you know it's that kind of thing of like you know are we or are we not in a shared universe and perhaps the mcu goes too far in this so i don't know i don't have something specific i'm just saying you know, it it almost reminds me of the 90s where we had these shows running concurrently at times, but they just seemed to be in their own little universes. And every once in a while, one of the characters would show up on one of the other shows. But, you know, what was the Enterprise doing during the Dominion War, you know, for example, and that right. kind of stuff? You know, it's just it just feels it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I, mean, they, I, maybe they I should write something up. I should. Think, I was you know, thinking you should think about it because I feel like you'd have some really good ideas because you always do. I mean, I do remember Voyager. I think when they finally got in contact with Starfleet again, they found out about the Dominion War. That I remember. Yeah. Because Balana found out that a lot of her friends had died. Yeah, I mean, there was an excuse for Voyager because they were, you know, literally on the other side of the galaxy. Right. But once they had contact, then they were able to find out what was going on. So, you know, I get the tone of what it is that you're looking for. So the last thing that Alex said that we wanted to talk about is he said that they are paying a lot of attention to what fans say about the shows. I think they're reading. I, I don't know if they're listening to people's podcasts because there are far too many of those, but they're definitely, I mean, we know some of the showrunners are, but they're reading the articles. They're reading social And they're trying to get a sense when fans love something, when fans hate something. They're just, he said, they're paying attention and and taking that information in. And I think that's apparent. I mean, it's been apparent since season two of Discovery, where they gave the Klingons hair again. You know, they are trying to respond to fan issues. You could say they're not doing enough or they're doing too much, but they are definitely... Well, it depends which fan and which issues, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um a hard group to please the fact that strange new worlds jumped the line ahead of michelle yo is another example yeah. um although the that might have been new worlds exists at all yeah you know so you know they're not doing these shows in a vacuum and i think that's good um they shouldn't listen to every fan who you know types something in all caps on twitter but they should listen in general and get a sense. But then again, you know, it's important to remember Twitter's not the real world, you know. I know. They should they should listen to fans of the conventions, which kind of have a different vibe. And they should, you know, I hate to say this. I was in marketing. They should do focus groups. They should do normal people stuff, you know, because you can get skewed by the online world. And, you know, we know this on our own website. You think of you look at how many people read an article and it's tens of thousands of people and then like a dozen people 
or maybe a hundred people make a comment, right? And, and you shake think, their fists and get mad and yeah. And the, the old joke is don't read the comments, but you know, you th- people read the comments and they think, oh, this is how fans think. And it's like, no, this is how the 55 people who really felt like the world needed to hear what they had to say. It's, it's, you know, it's the old thing of like, you know, you know, radio call-in shows, you know, who actually, right. the, the, the people who call in are the ones that are most motivated. And right. so- well, it's- it's, it goes back to like letters to the editor. And I always like people write in when they don't like something much more than when they do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's good to listen, but they should listen beyond just Twitter. <laughs> and, Which uh, I've, I've, I'm sure they do. Yeah. I mean, they're aware as well. You know, it's I mean, this is a very long interview. Uh, we've just t- just touched on a few little things, but. Wheaton goes through the whole all the shows and how they were put together and you know unfortunately they don't get into what's the next show and all that kind of stuff but um, it's worth listening and watching the two talk and get a sense of how he thinks about Star Trek etc. I agree it was a really good interview and it was that was the only thing I felt was missing from it was I wanted to know what was next. Yeah obviously they told Wheaton not to ask because he would have. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And maybe it, he did when the cameras were off. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he did. Yes. Wheaton, by the way, did kind of jokingly say that, you know, now that his character is a traveler, he could be in any show. So yes. he's he's hardcore pitching himself, not for his own show. But, but to, he could appear on any of them. Speaking of characters appearing in the future, uh, Kate Mulgrew. I know. I'm excited about this one. She's been evolving the answer to would she return to Star Trek? Would you do live action? Uh, You know, which you talked to her three years ago. It was like, no, basically. Well, she was like, I did everything I needed to do. And then I interviewed her again, like a couple years later, maybe. And then she was like, well, it would be delicious, I think was the word she used to return to that character. And that was before Prodigy. But she also said... But she doesn't think it would happen. Right. And I, by the way, I think when you interviewed her, she'd already started on Prodigy. Yeah, I think so, too. By the way, timing works on those kinds of things. But that was really more about live action Chainway. So in a new interview where she's promoting the Manifelt to Earth, which is another Alex Gertzman show she's in, she's now changed things up and is getting kind of more savvy. She's like, well, when they're done with Picard, which is going to be over soon... You know, and, and Jane was, you know, she's saying she's not going to show up on Picard, but then she says, but who knows what will happen in to her in the future? There seems to be, as I've, you know, a tremendous resurgence here, a rather vital one, meaning for the franchise. So for the first time, I'm actually looking at it with new eyes. I wonder what would happen if Jane Way were to come back to live action. I can tell you what would happen. People would be celebrating and cheering. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when we after we posted that article, Darren Scott, who's the editor of SFX, contacted us and said, you know, you missed something from our May issue where he also interviewed Mulgrew and asked her the same question. And this requires a combination of a description of her body language and what she said. So he asked her. You know, will she be back in live action? And he describes as she leans across the chair and grins and then says, I think there's a likelihood, actually. So it's happening. Boom. That sounds to me like she's at least had a conversation with someone about something. 
That sounds to me like more than just a conversation with somebody about something. Okay. So <laughs> I don't know that you would say that if you just had a preliminary conversation. Well, she could just feel like that the world is, I don't know, but I do feel like, you know, the, the Terry's made it clear, Terry Metallus, hello, Terry, that he wants to <laughs> stay in the 25th century and do more things. Um, and we've talked about the Rafi and seven show, which could be kind of the basis for this. I think if, if we see, I don't think there's a Star Trek Janeway show, but I could see her being part of a show that is set in that era. And she's like a, a senior admiral because she'd be, because she was an admiral right after at nemesis. And, yep. you know, by Rafi and seven time is 20 years later. Right. So she'd be a, very senior admiral although you know maybe she could be they could make her commander in chief why not um sure i would get, get rid of the hubris lady um <laughs> she could be like the one who sends them out on missions and all that kind of stuff she could be charlie to their angels <laughs> i mean look i would watch star trek janeway with great relish but i agree with you and i i long to see her with seven again so I think there's probably there are probably a lot of fans like me who really want to see Janeway and Seven interacting. So that would be a great place to do it or to test out the interest in all of that also. So, you know, they can always use one to create something else. So who knows? Yeah, I don't think you could do a show live action show with Seven like that in a big role and not involve Janeway. Now, speaking of things coming back from the past. Yeah. Nicholas Meyer lauded director of star trek 2 and star trek 6 and co-writer of star trek 4 he worked on the first season of discovery basically that was it and while he was there he wrote a mini series called seti alpha 5 about khan in exile between space seed and star trek 2 and paramount just didn't do anything with it it's been sitting around and every once in a while nick talks about it yeah he's frustrated for sure so he was on a podcast last week and they asked him about it and he goes, oh, it's a podcast. And the guys started laughing like he thought he was a, a joke. And he's like, no, I'm serious. It's going to be a podcast. <laughs> so and he went on to say it's going to you know, that they're developing it as a podcast. Said, I'm concluding a deal and he would write and direct it. He said, presumably direct it. But I presume that he would also. Right. Now, I contacted him to, you know, just confirm all these. And, you know, he he said it's a possibility. This has not been officially announced, so this isn't an official thing. And but when you talked to Alex on the gold carpet, he brought up. Yeah, the, he brought up that they're going to do additional things that aren't even shows. And so I sort of kept asking and podcasts and audio dramas. He seemed to indicate, yes, that that. He didn't directly say it, but he definitely seemed he said, yeah, those are all possibilities. So and look, audio dramas are getting very they're only getting bigger these days. We've talked about this before, but there are more and more of them. And and it's going from places like Audible doing them and they're doing ones with very big names, uh, big writers, big actors um, to to studios. All the studios are working on on dramatic podcasts now. So it's definitely a, an, an interesting area to go into. And Meyer used to do like radio plays in college. So this is a, a medium that he loves. So it seems like it's it's a good possibility. It's almost a no brainer. And if you think about it, it's like, oh, well, let's do an audio thing. It's like, well, we already paid him to make, you know, we've got the script line. 
on, you know? Right. Why, why not? I mean, the tricky part is the voice casting when you're talking about Khan. So you need to pick someone that fans can accept. Yeah. So that, that gets a little tricky, but it's not impossible. It's just finding the right person. Well, it's, I think it's easier, you know, than finding a live action actor to play. Oh, for sure. I think they just need to decide they're going to do this and, you know, and we'll see. But um, it's not a given. Right. But it seems like a likely. Now, something that is a given is the next generation cast are coming back to Picard, as we've said. LeVar Burton went a little past other actors and kind of blew right past his NDA and actually (laughs) revealed something about the season. He did. He said he gets to work with his daughter and she'll be playing one of his daughters, which is exciting and wonderful that Jordy finally gets a family. (laughs) Exactly. He's a normal person, which is something that he's he loves Star Trek, but one where place where he's criticized the next gen writers is how they treated Jordy and women and relationships. And he called it a tired trope, kind of the nerdy engineer who can't get with the girl. And so I'm sure he's delighted. Not only that Jordy has a family, but that he gets his real life daughter to play his daughter on the, um, on the show. And um, people have seen her. She and Will Wheaton hosted, they did a big Star Trek day thing together, right? Yeah, she's done a bunch of those. She's done the the Star Trek Day panels. She also did virtual panels before, not just with him, but with everyone. I'm not sure what he meant by this, but he kind of talked about how they're handing it off to the next generation to her. You know, so I think maybe his kids are, you know, maybe they're in Starfleet. Maybe they're part of the story. It's not just that he has kids and, you know, they are there, you know, have. I don't think he just waves goodbye to them and gets on the ship. Yeah, maybe they're part of the story is what it sounds like. So yep. that that's cool. He also said he said he's ready to say goodbye to Jordy. You know that if he never played him again, he'd be fine. And then of course he says, "But you know, I'm open to more." <laughs> so I mean, it's good. It's actually the right attitude, which is if it's over, great. It was wonderful. And if it's not over, great. You know, Patrick so. Stewart has talked about how season three really does put a nice finishing touch on the net i think all of them everyone who's worked on it has talked about just how wonderful the experience was and you know that terry is doing what he set out to do which is to give them a nice send-off not that we can't see any of these characters again but you know this is the goodbye they deserved yeah all right and then moving into hellos from goodbyes um (laughs) star trek discovery officially has started filming so on monday june 13th michelle paradise tweeted that it was the first day of production the exact date I said it was going to be. There you go, smarty pants. She sent out a picture of cones, which is a joke that she tried last time about, you know, this is what I could show you from the set, which are the cones they use to direct traffic at location shooting. And, you know, yeah, hilarious. She'll never, she'll never reveal anything. Ever. So she knows what she's doing. <laughs> Just by the way, uh, on Monday the 13th, they also start, started shooting the last episode of season two of Strange New Worlds, also wow. in Toronto. Things are busy in Toronto as we speak. Excellent. Paradise and Soniqua and David Ajala were on uh, one of these uh, industry kind of panels. Uh, it was a virtual panel because we're heading towards Emmy nomination season. And so they do these kinds of things. And so it was mostly talking about the last season and other stuff. But the moderator was like, he saw Strange New Worlds as competition for discoveries, the way he put it. 
um, saying, you know, because it's such a different show. And he said it's like a almost a science experiment to see which one does better, I think was the way he was putting it. And she, I, I felt in watching that she kind of defended both formats. She's like, that's the way it's supposed to be. The shows are supposed to be different. Alex set out to have each show have its own thing. So we do serialized. Right. They, they do episodic by design. And she, you know, talked up what she sees as the advantages. She talked about the advantages to each one. And I thought a pretty accurate assessment of the advantages to each one. She did kind of talk about how they approach each season. And so it's interesting they talk about, you know, is there a big bad and what's the nature of the big bad? What's the big challenge for Burnham this season? I think those are kind of always their two big things. Then she said, and then, you know, what are the arcs for each of our characters? And as she was going through them, she mentioned Tilly. And she wasn't specifically talking about season five, but it just was interesting to me that she talked about how they develop each season. And she mentioned Tilly because as of now, we don't even know if Tilly appears at all. Well, she said, I can't spoil anything into season five, except to say that we love Tilly. I expect that we'll have her in the world and all of those things. She's not going anywhere. Well, yeah, she said that a couple months ago. So I think Tilly's going to be part of season five. Yeah. The question is how much it goes guest star one episode recurring role or full on series regular again back on the ship almost you know perhaps i'm guessing recurring yeah me too but i do i feel like there's a hole oh 100 yeah so hopefully they will figure something out there but that was a presence that was definitely lacking if she is just a you know just as you know I'm sorry to use the word Jess, but if she is a recurring character, then they need a a way to fill that hole in other episodes. They need someone on the ship or some thing to add some lightness. Not someone who's just like her, but they just need something because it is a hole, as you said, and she is missed and having her show up every once in a while. And Tig doesn't do it. Like it's not comic relief. It's something else. Although the one quality they they have in common that I like is there's a directness of calling it like it is when other people are sort of speaking more carefully. That's true. That's true. And and so they need someone who can do that. And the problem with Tig is that she's just not as interwoven into everything because the way that they film with her and because of her availability. So they just, yeah, they need someone who's going to say the thing that nobody says. Okay, so that's it for Discovery. We're going to start talking about Strange New Worlds, a little bit of Strange New Worlds news, spoilery stuff, and then um, into the review. So actually, there's a little bit from that um, Kurtzman interview that we saved so that we didn't ruin it for you at the beginning of the podcast, talking about the Gorn, not my favorite topic. (laughs) And he said they're the key bad guys of the season. So they'll be back. He didn't get into detail on that, but then he kind of started talking in general about how you do something like the Gorn. He basically talked about old movies he loved and 
doing things with CG versus puppetry and indicated they are going to basically we're going to see Gorn and they're going to do a combination of CG and puppetry is what I took out of that. But also I got the sense we might see them. We won't see them full on, I think, for a while. Like he was talking about creative lighting and like in Jaws, the way that you don't see the shark for a while, you know, all these kinds. But of. But I, I think we've been tricks. through that. I think we've done the first half of Jaws. The oh, whole that's ep- it? All right. That, that, <laughs> the episode where we never saw Gorn was the first half of Jaws, where you just saw the fin, right? Right. When we get to them, you know, we're going to see the shark is basically... I think right. what's going to happen now, you know, the, we've seen some excellent puppetry on the show already um, in that episode. Shepard captain was uh, an entirely practical. I mean, I think there were some tiny CG elements, but there was a nice little um, ready room featurette that kind of showed them kind of an actor. And then, you know, they built all this puppetry around the actor. So there wasn't, right. A human in there so i i think it's not going to be a guy in a rubber suit but... i was just gonna ask is it gonna be a guy in a big rubber suit who moves really slowly <laughs> there's i think it's they know the challenge here but i think the bottom line is we're gonna see the gorn and they're they're coming back one of the things he talked to Will Wheaton about was the characters on Strange New Worlds in season two. He talked about other original series characters showing up. And he said, given that there's kind of a five year window before Kirk would have taken over the Enterprise, and then he wasn't sure on the timing, but more or less five years, he said others may show up. Which means they do. So, yes. we'll, you know, we'll see someone, you know, because last week we talked about Roger Corby. I think. I don't know. When you said others, it just feels like... Main cast members. Yeah. I mean, not cast members, characters. So I think we're basically talking about Sulu's or Scotty or Bones, one of the three. Right. Or Um, more than one of the three. Yeah. Right. Chekhov's still too young, right? Right. You Go listen to the podcast from the Shuttle Pod people where they kind of covered all of this. Yeah. Chekhov's (laughs) in high school somewhere. Yep. Um... (laughs) So uh, it would be very weird for him to show up. And certainly there are other characters in there that they can play with. But I'm pretty sure that he was talking about our main original series folks. Yes. One person we know is going to be there is Captain Kirk. Or no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say Captain Kirk. James T. Kirk. Right. Um, Not Sam Kirk. Not Captain Kirk. (laughs) James T. (laughs) Who's on the Farragut and a younger Kirk. Um, played by Paul Wesley. We've been hearing little tidbits here and there in the brand new issue of SFX is an interview. And they asked all the people about him. The one that kind of intrigued me the most was someone who actually wasn't asked about Kirk. And it's Christina Chong, who I think we previously talked about how she talks about how much fun she's having. She plays Laon with Paul Wesley on set. Right. And so when she was asked, just kind of the open-ended, Fun question of if you could serve under any other Star Trek captain, who would it be? And she said, Kirk, because he's very charming and because who knows? And then she had a meaningful smile, apparently. So, So, you know, I'm now at war with myself over this comment. Yeah, it feels to me like young Kirk and uh, young Leon... She may or may not have been talking, you know, but she's not a big time Star Trek fan. So I feel like she's speaking from experience as in, you know, this Paul Wesley guy 
he's cute and uh his kirk is charming and maybe there's something happening here so which just right i mean it's such a tricky like it's one of those things again where i have to separate myself from what i know to not start tearing my hair out (laughs) that's the only way i can express it like i love her character that idea is interesting until you think about the fact that they were all like, who's this in space seed? Who's this con Noonien Singh? Noonien Singh, huh? Like, it's, it is a challenge that nobody ever reacts to the name. And they seem to have never heard of him. Just just to goad Khan, Kirk would have said, you know, I hooked up with one of your descendants. They're just, it just would have come up. And so you, I have to shut it off or I just get annoyed by it and i don't want to be annoyed i want to be enjoying it uh, you know the, the easy way around the head cannon run is these are not historical records the events of spacey took place over days or whatever and we didn't see every minute maybe maybe in between yeah, scenes I... kirk mentioned to Khan. you know it's just like uh you know uh, walter koenig always talks about how there's the scene we never saw in space seed where Khan tries to use the bathroom and Chekhov was in the bathroom. And that's how he recognized Chekhov in Star Trek too, right? right. So, you know, we it, there are ways around these things. But... Right. I mean, this to me is bigger than that. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that you are <laughs> putting a good spin on it, but it just, obviously, that it's significant. It is. It wouldn't be significant that he met Chekhov somewhere, but this would be significant. So they're... They're stretching and playing, and I think sometimes playing in ways that just discount what we know, but I do appreciate what they're doing, and I enjoy it for the most part, but it definitely requires a lot of wrestling, internal wrestling. Well, you know, we can't uh, go crazy over it until we see it, so let's... True. Rebecca, who's a nerdy Star Trek fan, said that, you know, just reading the script with Kirk, uh, the episode they were currently shooting... I said it uh, brought tears to her eyes. She said you burst into tears, which is even bigger than tears in your eyes. There's some more quotes in there, but we should move on to actually talking about real strange new worlds, which exist now. The Serene Squall, episode seven. Agreed. So do you want to start with your big picture? So I like this episode uh, again. It's not the best of the season, but it was enjoyable. It had a lot of fun bits in it. There were some big ideas and and really an exploration of Spock mixed in with a kind of goofy, funny Pike pirate story. I'm not sure they fit well together, perhaps, but I still liked it. Um, and, uh, so there you go. What do you think? It wasn't a favorite, but I did enjoy it. I think it had a mixture of tone and that was, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And I, there were like sitcom moments. There were a couple of really big sitcom like moments, but then this very serious threat at the same time. But I think they're, you know, I think they're getting, they're trying to be playful with being able to have those within an episode. And I think for the most part, they did it effectively. There was one particularly cheesy sitcom moment that I just thought was a trope and very silly. But the big thing for me in this episode was that I am seeing the connection to Chapel that I never saw before. 
So, you know, I've been saying on this podcast, well, Chapel's a different character. Chapel's a different character. I am now seeing a connection that I didn't see. And I'm seeing the foundation of a Chapel and Spock relationship that does make sense in the way that we see it in the original series. And I was watching some older scenes, original series scenes of Spock and Chapel for something that I was writing, something else that I was working on. And I felt like there was even more there than I had realized. And it does, it can all kind of work together. And I'm very interested in what they're doing with this chapel. So yeah. it was exciting for me to see where they're going with her. And I have very mixed thoughts about what's good and what's bad about it. Like I relate to some of it on sort of a personal level and then do and don't want to see it. I really appreciated finally being able to see their relationship, their friendship, and a possible evolution to where they net out in the end. They definitely seem to be accelerating. Yeah, I was so, you know, we start off with Spock, you know, dealing with T'Pring relationship, which has kind of been his ongoing thing. And T'Pring seems to have been, you know, is is kind of embracing his humanness. And, and we had that kind of weird, awkward talk about yeah. sex, but that set up him turning to chapel so chapel's now his kind of wing woman his... right. i want to go back for one second to the conversation that he had with to about sex because he you know in the previous episodes he seemed quite fine with being like we're about to have sex look i'm with my shirt off with my girlfriend and i really want to have sex right now and all of a sudden he's like so jumpy when his girlfriend there's nobody else even there is mentioning things about sex he's like almost doing spit takes and getting super awkward, like it's an episode of the original series. And, you know, Kirk used to even get stammery. Picard used to get stammery. Suddenly nobody can talk about sex. So I thought that was uh, inconsistent with where he was before. Well, here's how I took that, which is he isn't comfortable doing it over the phone, as it were. He doesn't like sexting. I see what you mean, and but it didn't occur to me at the time. It just, it just maybe it's just something about the formality of, long-range communicating or whatever well, it could but, be. Uh, he did make the comment at the end that it's hard to not be seeing each other in person yeah so that's how right. that's how i took that but like it was it. it was really to set up so that he had to turn to chapel it's like right. they needed to give him a reason and it feels like they accelerated but that's common on tv shows where like they, they basically said that one kind of comedy episode set them up so now they're buddies yeah, and I have no trouble believing that that friendship has continued in between, you know, in the gaps between episodes and the moments we don't see. Yeah, it's a very interesting relationship they're setting up where she's probably the only person on the ship where he'd be willing to have a conversation about sex with. And, you know, and she's a medical professional and, you know, people are more open when they're talking to their doctors or nurses about these kinds of things as well. So I, I feel like that's all logical to borrow a phrase for Spock to have this friendship with her because he's trying to navigate these things. So no, I, I like where they're going with this relationship. I like the specifics of their dialogue too. It's fun. Like where she tells him it's fun to be friends with Vulcans because they're honest. And then after they've been talking about things, she says, pro tip, you'd better pay attention to me when I'm talking because, and then he finishes the sentence, you are completely charming and I am missing it. And I was like, that was a great little exchange. And it tells you a lot about the two of them and about the type of friendship that they're developing. It seemed very flirty, but, you know, she knows he has a girlfriend, which is kind of is the whole point of a lot of where this is going this episode. And she's respectful of it. The question is, 
does he know and is she acknowledging that she likes him early on? Because at the end, she basically says, look, I like you, but you've got a girlfriend and that's that. But is that, do they, are they also starting from that point of view? Like, does he know at the beginning that she likes him? I think he's thinking more that he likes her and that there's nothing he can do about it. Right. Because he That's says, true. he says to both to Pring and Chapel, he says, you know me well. Yes, that's true. And when he says it to Tepring, I think he's maybe not telling the truth. He's a little bit hidey, hiding about what he, you know, the kiss with Chapel, which is the, that's the big sitcom moment because only on TV are people forced to kiss who wouldn't otherwise. Like that is just not a thing that ever happens in real life. It's just a fakey TV thing. But we know that he has feelings for her and that he's in conflict about it. Well, And this perhaps is the core of Spock's story in this episode is his solution to the problem was to get to Pring to break up with him so that you know, to avoid the prisoner exchange. I know we're jumping forward, but he he was out at that point. Yep. And from a Vulcan society point of view. It was fine. They were severed. But then he said, I didn't know if you would come. So did he want her back? Because he's, you know, it seemed like he did. He could have kept it ended. And he seemed to want them to get back together again. Yeah, I sort of, you so know, it's a it's great. It's not just I, obligation. I think that is the question of the episode, because I think he wasn't sure. And all this I'm just inferring, like this was not in the episode. But what I liked about it was that it, there were places for you to have these thoughts and try to decide on your own. And I think that he wasn't sure. And then if she had been like, it's over, he would have been okay with that. And if she had, and because she did what she did, he's good with that too. And I think there was a telling moment when they start kissing. And at first there was, it didn't feel, it didn't look good. You know, it didn't right. look like they were really feeling it. And then they kind of got into it. So it's almost like you can see his internal journey playing out without him overplaying it, too, which I think is great. Again, Ethan Peck, A+. You know, the fundamental thing about, that everyone knows about Spock is he's half human, half Vulcan. You know, but at this point in his life, he is you know, dealing with that struggle. And he is explicitly in the episode, he talks about, you know, he's embracing his Vulcan side. He always describes himself as a Vulcan, as he does in this episode. He talks about how he wants to do the culinary. He's looking forward to it, which is kind of the the ultimate thing for Vulcans. Let go of everything but logic. And I think this episode is showing possibly how perhaps he sees T'Pring as part of his Vulcan identity. That he wants to be Vulcan, and by marrying T'Pring... That is part of him fully embracing his Vulcanness. Yep, and and part of his Vulcan. So they've kind of tied together this struggle he's having with work relationship balance and his human Vulcan balance. And because we know that eventually he is going to sort out that there is what 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 cat you know what Captain Angel is telling him there is another way. And he's not going to realize that until Star Trek: The Motion Picture, when he right. cries, when he cries for Viger, you know, and he rejects the Kolinar, and he finds the value in in human touch. I mean, not human race specifically, yeah, but person to person. 
but he's now he's still in it. I want to be Vulcan. That's important to me. Therefore, I need to be married to to bring. And we know his future is him headed into being more Vulcan. Yeah, he's he's definitely going to embrace more. So, you know, even if he does like Christine, and he probably does because she's charming, as he pointed out, it doesn't fit this other bigger issue. And I think this is this is the heart of the episode. And and now we know why they brought in Jesse James Keitel. Who did a great job, by the way. Right. And they made a big deal out of, oh, you know, we're hiring this uh, trans woman as a non-binary character. And people are like, oh, you know, they're just doing that to, you know, virtue signal. But no, th- th- there was a specific reason why she was cast and this character was here because she showed up to say to Spock that you deciding to say you're a Vulcan is you know, you aren't a Vulcan. You're half human, half Vulcan. And therefore, something else entirely. I mean, that was the main point they were trying to make. Yeah, was, it was a little heavy handed you know, the way she little. talked about it. You think a little? <laughs> but <laughs> uh, by the way, we're saying she and this is, you know, this is kind of a, a pronoun difficult situation because Jesse James Keitel uses she. The character is not binary and uses they them. So I'm apologizing for all the times we get that wrong. Right. Okay. So Dr. Aspen, who isn't really Dr. Aspen, who's wandering around on some abandoned planet. alone. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second. That's annoying me (laughs) on a whole other level. Um, But I think that it was great casting and it was a great way to explore this area of Spock, you know, which kind of shines a light on. Yeah, like his whole thing is kind of a facade, his whole I'm a Vulcan, you know, because he is something different. And, Although he uh, is, he is those things, and he is something else. Yeah, it's not that he isn't Vulcan, but you know that there is, you know, he does come to understand and embrace and be something else. I think, and we we see that in the the film series, really, and a little bit in uh, Next Generation. This is kind of the you know just setting a flag for him. I think where Angel's saying, you know, there is another way. Right. You don't have to just stick to the things that you there are more options than you believe there are, was the point. But, you know, and then going at a meta level, you know, and you hear this all the time, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, identify with Spock. And this goes back to the 60s. And Spock has also been embraced by a lot of people in the LGBTQ community as well because of these issues of identity and being the other. And. I think it's kind of poetic how they kind of put that all together in this episode. Yeah, I do too. I mean, also, I think uh, biracial people, people who have a couple of different ethnic backgrounds also feel connected to, I mean, I connected to him just because I was an adolescent girl trying to hide emotions, but, (laughs) but I think there are a lot of people who connected with him just because they saw someone who was trying to handle being conflicting things having conflicting cultures and trying to make them work together yes and then in terms of sexuality of course so only because the chapel spock story this is the thing that had me thinking about it the most so chapel at the end we can tell she's fallen in love right she loves him yeah we and and isn't going to do anything about it she says very clearly i know where i stand with you so and she knows a lot of things i mean she she knows sarah is his dad kirk didn't know that so she knows a lot of things about him. And so, it, you know, 
is and what we've seen in her background is that she has only wants casual relationships we know she has a serious relationship in her future and so i'm sort of torn because in one way i love this idea as someone like my i always identify with these types of characters which are the ones who like yearn and pine and can't do anything about it because whatever a lot of my youth was yearning and pining for people i couldn't do anything about so <laughs> for whatever reasons and so I love that as a story and I identify with it. And yet in a way, I almost worry that it weakens her a little bit to be someone who goes from like, I want all these casual relationships and I'm cool with it to just being someone who can't have what she wants. Like, what do you think about her as a character with all of this factored in? Well, I, I see those as tied together. You know, she doesn't want casual relationships because she's been hurt in the past, probably by someone who lied to her. I think the way she talks about you know why she likes Vulcans is because they don't lie. It sounds like someone who's been lied to to me and hurt. I suspect, by the way, that the reason she hooks up with Cor, you know, uh, Roger Corby, is because she's kind of on the rebound and looking for someone else um, to fill that void because Spock never will. So no, I, I mean, I am very much enjoying Chapel, but I'm not constant. The thing is that I am not thinking about. Majel Barrett's chapel as I'm watching this chapel. I am just watching this chapel. And I think it's a fascinating, interesting character. I think Jess Bush is doing a really good job. And so, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing where they go with this. And if it all fits beautifully later with uh, Majel Barrett Chapel, great. But that is not the yardstick I'm using. The yardstick yeah, I'm not I'm even using. talking about that when I'm thinking about it. I'm just thinking about her as her own character and what it means for a character to have a huge part of their story be unrequited love. Oh, you know, that's genuine. That's real. That's human. Right. I, I mean, not in a critical should it be their way, but it's just I, my only I hope that they give her more than that, I guess. It's a tough one. Like I said, it's a story I like. But it's a part of a person I like, but I'm I I don't want it to weaken her, if that makes sense. Sure. But we you know, we have seen she's a tough cookie in this episode. She was, you know, defending herself. She's trying to. Oh, she was to awesome. She had a hidden weapon. Nothing up my sleeve except for this thing up my sleeve. Like she was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, she was trying to take over the ship. So, yeah, she was great. And we've seen her in previous episodes being smart and. She's still that person. So she has agency and she has, you know, romance issues. And that's just part of who she is, but it isn't defined. It doesn't define who she is. I don't feel, and I hope, and I hope that she has, you know, interesting storylines outside of Spock and relationships for sure. Yes, that is, um, that is sort of, that's my hope. You know, hopefully there's a, you know, hopefully there's a Bechtel test scene with her and Ortegas and they don't talk about men at all, you know, or relationships. Um, right. I'm fine with her as a character. Yeah, no, none, none of my, none of what I was saying was I'm not fine. I think okay, she's good, 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 yeah. good. So now we can talk about Captain Angel. So the whole premise of this episode <laughs> is thin. Okay, I mean, I yeah, first of all, was... I I like that they're on the frontier, the and they literally call it the Wild West. I mean, this is kind of old, you know. It's it's the wagon train to the stars, so that all yeah. makes sense. They're they're helping non-Federation colonists. Um, that's, you know, questionable, but sure, why not? But the premise is that Dr. Aspen is a real person, was a counselor, was in Starfleet, left Starfleet 
to become a humanitarian aid worker and contacted Starfleet, somehow got the USS Enterprise, because that was the whole plan. Right. right? <laughs> to get the Enterprise out there, saying that there were three colony ships that didn't exist. They were faking being Dr. Aspen. Like, did no one do any follow? I mean, we can only assume, like my head can, like, that their plea to Starfleet somehow made it the case where only the Enterprise could respond because maybe it was the only ship in the sector. Right. And that there was a, a mountain of evidence proving that they were Dr. Aspen. Like they somehow changed all of Starfleet records to look like them. Right. Sure. And <laughs> that these ships existed and they f- falsified records of these ships because it made the episode made it sound like they just called up Starfleet and said, oh, yeah, these three ships. Can you send the Enterprise? And Starfleet's like, sure. Be right, be right there. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, they would well, have asked questions. There would have been due deal. Someone would have looked into it before they sent the ship. And Do you know uh, what else was pretty thin? What? Do you remember the reason that they went, they crossed into non-Federation space? Because Laon goes, maybe they're going to, they have the colonists and they're going to use them as slaves. Oh. Maybe they are. Let's go. Like, again, yeah. that seemed a little flimsy for me. It's just some one person speculating that that could right. be why. I mean, usually in one of these situations where someone has an elaborate plan at the end that they go, oh, you all fell into my plan. And you think Aww. back like of, of like the 10 steps that had to happen or the plan wouldn't have worked. You think, OK, how did you know? all those 10 things were going to happen where they, cause they, the whole point was to end up in that specific asteroid field. Right. But you know what? It's annoying. It's weak, but it doesn't ruin the episode, you know, well, but cause it also was... it's one of the byproducts of episodic versus serialized is that they have to take shortcuts because sure. it would have taken a long time to get to all that stuff. So they yeah. were just trying and the, the episode moved quickly and they were trying to get us there. And so they take those shortcuts it's a price you pay. But one thing that did bug me and I thought was just a bad decision was when Pike shows up on the ship and Remy says, welcome to the Serene Squall. He revealed the twist. So later when Dr. Aspen holds the phaser on Spock, we already knew they were involved because now we know that this isn't a colony ship. This was the pirate ship all along. Right. Therefore, the person who drew who got them there must be a pirate. So I felt like Remy should have never said, welcome to the Serene Squad. That they should have kept us believing that that ship, you know, it might've been full of pirates, but it wasn't the pirate ship until we found out they were, Dr. Aspen was Captain Angel. Or did you, or did you, or did that not bother you at all? No, I mean, it all was, I mean, I was also very distracted by how much Remy reminded me of um, Yondu from Guardians of the Galaxy. Kind of the same character. Pretty much the same guy. All of the characters were shortcuts. They were all very thin, very, you know, one-dimensional pirate characters. Yeah. But he was very specifically reminded me of Guardians of the Galaxy. But yes, it was, it was obvious that that long before, um, Captain Angel pulled out the two phasers in the Jack Bauer move of holding the two weapons. Um, <laughs> it was obvious. 
as soon as Spock entered the command, I'm like, what are you doing, man? Can't you see it? Dude. They are playing you. They're so playing you. No, I mean, but, the, you know, I, I think the all the mutiny stuff and the pike cooking and the dialogue. I mean, this is where things get weird because the, there's kind of this kind of wacky pirate adventure happening on the pirate ship. And then they jump back to these kind of like serious, tense fighting and discussions of identity and all this on on the enterprise with spock and dr aspen and and um i don't know that 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 did create these kind of some tone as you're pointing out disconnects i felt yeah. in the, the middle part of the episode right and also i mean there was that weird moment where remy says you know what if i just start throwing what if i throw your crew airlock them into space one by one and i was thinking well first of all that would have worked so yeah yeah that would have worked in a heartbeat. He would have immediately, before anyone was airlocked out into space, that would have been that, which is also, by the way, very Guardians of the Galaxy. But anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, so that's it, that even within that was that contrast of like these menacing people who I guess want them to be slaves or want to sell them or do something with them and are threatening them and are punching the crap out of Pike and then goofing around making food and cause, stirring up dissent. It was uh, clashy it was a little clashy tone wise like really grim and then just wacka alpha braga wacka wacka yeah. the um the whole gambit relied on how the crew would be terrified of the klingons and in a weird way like if if we did star trek discovery did kind of set up the klingons as terrifying you know, they killed everyone yeah. you know they, they they were not let's face it the original series klingons were almost adorable well except times. no but i mean look errand of mercy not adorable at all no so but they weren't they, were, they didn't they, look physically terrifying but they were supposed to be pretty savage yeah but it was almost you know there was all cold war it was like the russians you know the, the idea of pirates trying to sell federation prisoners to klingons that seemed like a would have been a reasonable thing to pull off you know whereas these pirates who are supposedly bloodthirsty pirates willing to kill children would be apparently a lot of them did want nothing to do getting anywhere near Klingon. So I feel like season one of discovery kind of sold that notion that, yeah, you just, you don't want to be in the same room as a Klingon. You don't want to be yeah. negotiating with them, even selling Federation prisoner, which is something that they probably would want to do, but then they'll probably just turn around and kill you all. Um, right. And so, no, I, I liked that. I think that that all worked. I think it, it fits Discovery and original series. I really do. It'll be interesting because, you know, will we ever see a Klingon on the show? Like, how can they pull off multiple seasons and not do it? Yeah, it, I feel like they've got to show up at some point. Yeah, but it'll be very interesting how they do it. Not just the makeup, but. Just I know. Just the what... makeup is what everybody will fight about. But <laughs> yeah, but how they. Yeah, how they portray them will be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be more in line with Discovery, obviously. Speaking of a minor but significant mention, T'Pring is on her little prisoner thing, which isn't a prison. It, it's a lovely, and they, they're doing arts and crafts. Art classes. <laughs> yes. And she's and wearing they're... gobs of makeup and a headscarf and all kinds of things. <laughs> um, her assistant, or at least one of her colleagues, was named Stan. Yeah. So... It's the beginning of the end. Yep. This is, this episode is essentially the beginning of the end, I think. I wanted Stan and Stan wanted me. Yep. 
<laughs> Shall we talk about the um, elephant in the room of the prison, as it were? We <laughs> I know. I can't believe we haven't even mentioned it yet. Okay. Well, it does happen in the last one minute, 30 seconds. As soon as Captain Angel wanted a specific Vulcan, you start running through Vulcans in your head. Original series era Vulcans. And you know the only one that came to me was Cybok, because I couldn't think of any renegade Vulcan, you know, any Vulcan who would be in prison besides him. So I kind of guessed before. Well, it but happened. she was chasing down some other Vulcan in the other episode. I mean, I'll be honest; I wasn't thinking about who it was. I wasn't thinking about the significance of who it was. Well, they also tell Spock at one point says, "I think I know who they're talking about." Right. Um. So that kind of telegraphed it as well. Right, but that um, happened fairly close to the end of the whole thing. I mean, people are going to be freaking out over this, maybe. I mean, I'm fine with it, because Cybok is an interesting character. He's part of canon, and um, he's a renegade. I like when they choose someone where there's room to play. I don't like when they choose someone where there isn't, but in this case, there's a ton of room to play in. Yeah, there's no reason why Pike and number one and all of them could even Uhura could meet um cyborg though maybe we'll have to think about that one now that i think about it like i have to rewatch star trek five again i guess but i i think it's fine my bigger issue with that actually is what i don't want is the way that for a long time a lot of the things that happened to michael burnham on discovery were so personal to her always like what a tiny galaxy kind of feel and i don't want this to be all about Spock all the time. I mean, I don't know how, obviously this storyline is going to keep going. So I'm, I just am a little worried that suddenly it's all, all roads lead back to Spock. I'm not sure when they're going to get to it because I, I, I didn't see Cybok in the credits. So, and it, they shot him from the back. It's yeah. just some guy with a beard. So I think that was just like, you know, a, a extra essentially. If the next episode was going to be all about Cybok, that would have been that actor and he would have been credited. So, Well, not necessarily just the next one, but it, it felt like a, a building story to me. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to come back to it and we're going to learn more about Cybok. And it also shows you the long game they were playing because I thought I thought at the time, like, you know, why is to bring this rehabilitation Vulcan? You know, and it's like, well, nope, they were playing the long game yep. all along. Yep. Um, so it all makes sense now. And I think it'll be interesting, you know, although, again, even if it's Cybok, hopefully he's taking them to a strange new world because he's we don't you know, the whole point of the show is new and interesting things. So there is room to grow with Cybok, perhaps, but he is a known quantity. And exactly. um, you wonder for Captain Angel and. Is Cybok controlling Captain Angel through his superpowers, right? Because he has that uh, I take your pain away thing. Like, has he developed any kind of control mechanism? Well, Captain Cause... Angel had a lot of pain. <laughs> or is it just as simple that are they actually married? It's right. a little and, unclear. And Cybok hasn't developed into the person that he will one day become. But does Captain Angel know that he is Cybok? You know, and, you know, I guess. Because he uses a different name, I th which I thought is just a dumb thing. You know, that that that's the thing that bugs me. Like, we haven't heard that name before, and I'm like, that's probably a different name of the same character. You know, that right? That old well, what trick. was it like, Zavarius or something like that? Yeah. 
Yeah. I so. mean, I did because I had to, I researched Star Trek five when we were live tweeting it for Pluto. Um, and then I ended up writing an article about it and his name initially or somewhere along the line was like czar or something like that before it became Cybok. Maybe they leaned into that a little bit. I don't know. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, we're in the kind of wrap up. Are there any other little bits? Yeah, I have a few. The one thing I loved, Ortegas and Pike, with Ortegas saying, how close do you want to get? First date or third date? Pike says, blind date. And Ortegas says, right. copy, proceeding with caution, sir. I loved all that. And then it came back again, the flying manually, which I really love those scenes where where she's flying manually, where she she said, I feel like the ship and I are in a deep conversation, like a third date. So I loved all of that stuff. And again, I'm waiting for my Ortegas episode. Where the hell is Hammer? Right. They go that they're in engineering. I mean, he's only been really in two episodes. It's it's starting to me to feel like Tignataro, where maybe it's a logistics thing where they he couldn't be on set only a couple weeks, you know, maybe he's busy with other things. Cause it it makes no sense for him to be promoted as, you know a main character and the chief engineer. And I want to see, you know, and I love him too. So I want to see more of him. Do you feel like they went too far when, when Pike started doing the, the pirate voice? No, nah, I mean, no, but you know what? Cause I liked that Una was like, please stop. <laughs> but she was smiling. She liked it. I think obviously Ortegas loved it. I, yeah. I mean, the whole Pike Ortegas dynamic is so good. It. It's really, All episode, really good. It was good. Yeah. And he, I'm liking him more and more. Every week, I like sometimes he's sassy Pike, sometimes he's homespun Pike, sometimes he's very serious Pike. I like all these different dimensions of his. That he really took a character that did not have a lot of dimension, and he's giving it so much. And you know, and he, you know, he, meaning Anson Mount, knew this was a Spock story, but he still like had fun with his essentially B story. The, the pirate story itself was kind of the B story this time. And they knocked his hair down with all that I punching. <laughs> his hair suddenly was like, fl- I mean, he looked really cute, but uh, <laughs> it was like his high hair suddenly, bloop, no, once you get punched, that's it. They took the, the punch out of the hair. How many punches did it take to knock down? Knock the that- hair down. There must have been like 10 punches before we even saw that. <laughs> exactly, because that... The, the amount of product, the amount of 23rd century space product to create the super hair. Yeah, there were like two pirates whose fists just came and smashed into it and then they were bleeding and they had to leave. And then they <laughs> wore down the hair for the third person to come in and start whacking. Here's one detail that I want to ask you if you noticed about Captain Angel's necklace. I assumed it was like a gift from Cybok, maybe? What, what, what did you think? Well, so first there was the moment in the turbo lift, right? Which is the first moment, like they ask Spock, oh, can you help me with my necklace? Which took literally one second, right? Like, look, I wear necklaces and I occasionally ask someone to help me. So it should have taken more than a second. And I thought, are they doing that to create an intimate moment where they're physically close? No, because he was done in one second. So he touched that necklace for a reason. And then... Captain Angel pulled the necklace out of the from under their clothes and then beamed out, right? So that seemed to have the signal or mm-hmm. something. And then at the very end, tucked it back in. So I just felt like that all happened for a reason and that Spock had to touch it for a reason. They needed his DNA or something? Something. Or... Mm, I'm not sure. Otherwise, I don't know what that scene in the turbolift was because normally you would do that to just 
to give people a moment where they're physically uncomfortably close, which they did not do. But they said that they had been working him and emotionally manipulating him. And I think it was just all part of that package of emotional manipulation. It was a, you know, it's a minor moment of intimacy between people. But they, but it wasn't that to me. It's like it's it was it was almost one. So that's why I thought it was well, important. I think you're. I I think you're weighing too much that it was quick. I think the whole notion of putting on helping someone. It's all about him helping them, which was what their whole plan was: is to get him to see them as someone who needed his help. That was it. Was all part of that. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's. I felt like there was something more there. Okay, well, we'll see, obviously. I liked, just a minor thing, when Tpring was rattling off the names of books that involve a lot of sex, Mm -hmm. um, and Spock didn't know the names of any of them, and I was thinking of Star Trek IV, obviously, when Kirk starts rattling off 20th century novels, and Spock calls them the giants, and the guy, like, so maybe Tpring got him into reading more human literature, (laughs) um... Although there was a, you know, tied to this story, one of the books she mentioned, uh, The Argonauts, Argonauts? is actually a modern book that deals with trans issues. So it kind of ties into that other big issue. But it still made me think of The Giants, um, the novels of Harold Robbins. Um, I also thought the use of music in this episode was excellent. I just think they're doing a really nice job going back to that original series way of using music that I really enjoy. The music is a character like it was yeah. in the original series. Namie yep. understands that. Obviously, Alex, who brought her onto the show. One of the things that Alex Kurtzman does is he puts these teams together. He hired her. He found her. He wanted the music on this show to have a voice because he knew that that fit with the show. Yes. And it's working. Agreed. I didn't, I mean, it was a fun thing. The thing about Pike being a Boy Scout and stuff and, 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 uh, number one said it's in your fo- you you either are or you are not a boy scout so i guess it's the question is if he's saying he wasn't a boy scout why is it in, why is it in his file or was she joking what did uh, it was think? all a joke i i think it was a i don't think it was being an actual boy scout <laughs> i think okay. just it was about describing him as a boy scout <laughs> right it was his character not his personal history well then he <laughs> kind of wanted to go out of his way to show that he's a rule breaker yeah um, i i think that's the intriguing thing about Pike is he's both by the book and willing to throw the book away. Cause you know, it, you know, last week's episode was very serious and it dealt, um, you know, we didn't really talk about the fact that Pike basically ignored the prime directive when he tried to save the kid. And he, uh... and then when they woke him up, he tried again. The prime directive isn't just about contacting pre-warp civilization. It's, it's generally, walking in and saying you know we are going to disrupt you know the natural flow of your civilization him trying to stop the coronation which essentially it was of this society this is how they've decided to run their society and he tried to stop it that that is a prime director violation right although i don't think he was fully grasping what all of that would mean i think he just saw a kid about to be killed he, he, he's a starfleet captain he knows what he's doing he knows that would be a prime you know and he he's okay with that that's my point is that he's like fine i'm going to do that because that's the right thing to do which is what he said this time i'm not going to wait for starfleet to tell me right that it's wrong or right to stop slavery based on one crew member's suggestion 
that that might be what's happening. <laughs> yeah, just someone who's not even yeah, and and this other person who isn't even in Starfleet. <laughs> but it also it was believable to everyone that there are people colonists you know, who are dehydrated and malnourished. I thought that was like, why are these people doing this? Where are they coming from? They're yeah. non-Federation. Were they human? Who who are these colonists? And I wanted to know more about that. And, um, but it, yeah, cause you mean the pirates you know, or the, cause they said the, or that they just should have asked about the colonists. The, no, the, the fictional doctor. Colonists. Well, the fictional call, but, but the way, you know, there is a real Dr. Aspen who's on some planet somewhere stranded, apparently. So hopefully they go back for to find Dr. Aspen. No one mentioned that at the end. You know, there's a real Dr. Aspen out there. Someone should find them. But whatever that Dr. Aspen is doing is dealing with people who are severely disadvantaged, it sounds like. And they're these, yes. quote, colonists. Colonists from where? Are these people leaving the Federation? I want to know more about that because, you know, is everyone in the Federation well-fed and hydrated, I think is something that we assume. Yes. So why are these people, why, you know, why are there starving, dehydrated people on some colony somewhere? I mean, how is that even possible is the question. They're probably just aliens going from one alien planet to another alien planet, running away from bad aliens or something because it seemed to be all outside of the federation but yeah that was the impression i got I still and then like... they, they gave away line when when angel was still pretending to be aspen was that their experience showed that people who need help don't always feel they can ask yeah anyway i think i was gonna say i think we've done it <laughs> yeah so you know i'm saying seven for seven you're staying six for seven yeah right fair enough Let's move on to our bits of the week. Mine is from the official Star Trek site. They're doing a kind of Captain Week, and there's this excellent article (laughs) (laughs) um, called In Defense of Captain Kirk, written by a certain Lori Ulster. And it's a fun read all about how, and I think this fits well in what they've been doing on the on. The official site, because the official site has had all of these articles in recent, you know, in the last year and a half or so that have really talked about progressive politics and all that kind of stuff inside Star Trek and talking about the new shows a lot. And you laid out how Captain Kirk in 1966 is a progressive hero then and a progressive hero now. Hell yes. Yeah. And look, I and my only concern in writing that was I didn't want it to be fuel for the people who don't like the progressivism and want to say, yeah, Kirk was great. And these ones suck. Cause I love how progressive Star Trek is. My point was it's always been that way. And Kirk has this weird reputation that doesn't match the actual character. When you watch the show, you go, Oh yeah, no, he's not. He's not that guy. The way people describe him. He's, he's always thoughtful, reflective, um, progressive, puts himself in other people's shoes, tries to see himself the way they see him. You know, he was always that guy. I mean, even I, I mentioned Edith Keeler specifically in there, but if you look at all the different women he was with, with the exception of Ruth <laughs> from Shore Leave, who to me was like an empty shell of a person. Um, <laughs> it was always these very interesting, smart women. Yeah. Powerful women. Yep. Usually. So there's a reason that I looked up to him as a kid and there's a reason that that character is a great one. And it's, it's not because he's swaggery because he wasn't, he was, he was a very 
rich, multi-layered, thoughtful character. And I'm happy that um, the article's definitely gotten a lot. I've, I've seen people talking about it online and people have reached out to me. So it's been a very rewarding thing. And I wrote it from the heart and I, all the examples came right into my mind. And I, I didn't have to like look through things to see if I could find examples. They were all right there. So what is your bit of the week? Mine is something we have on the site. So the same company that did, remember the when they did The Next Generation and the style of the animated series? So it's Gazelle Automations. And this time they took on Voyager and they did the classic Voyager episode, Threshold. <laughs> classic in air quotes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's like it's almost six minutes long. There's, they picked a great episode to play with. And they said the reason, you know, you, you did the interview, right? Yeah. And so they said that the reason they picked it was because it is very, it has an animated series kind of vibe to it with, with crew members turning into salamanders, which is true. And then they wanted to, you know, they wanted to actually show all the characters. So you'll see seven of nine is in the background of some scenes, even though she wasn't on the ship. Then they used um, the David Gerald character from the animated series. EM3 Green. Yeah, because that episode is so goofy. And let's face it, the animated series, although it has some great episodes, does get, it gets a little goofy. And the way this guy nails the filmation style is amazing. And the music and the beats, it, it's just so... And this one was harder because the, the, the TNG one was like two minutes. So this is over twice as long and it's just worth watching. People are like, oh, well, you got to keep on going. I think he's proved his point, but if he wants a DS9 and... No, he has to do DS9. I don't know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> can you lobby can do for a... it. I want to see it. I, <laughs> it. I just, I want to see it. But I, they're the job they're doing is perfect. Like they've nailed everything. So I don't even want to describe it more because I just want people to go watch it and enjoy it. So that's it for this episode of All Access Star Trek. We'll be back next week to talk about episode eight of Strange New Worlds. And then we have a couple more episodes. And then we have a little time that we can talk about other things, hopefully get some interviews in there, do our hundredth episode. Exciting. So please do us a favor, leave us comments on the site, and also do us a really big favor and go to Apple and leave us some reviews on the podcast, please. Thanks for listening.